0: Well, good morning to all, and a happy Father's Day. I trust all of you have had at least uh, one wish of a happy Father's Day thus far. I've decided to speak on uh, the book of Jude uh, this morning, earnestly contending for the faith. Because uh, the circumstances around us are quickly falling apart. And Christians are being bombarded with false teachings left, right, and center. And so it's always wise to go back to the Word and see what the Word says. So our main text comes from Jude verses 1 to 7 for this morning, and Lord willing, we'll deal with part 2 some other time. Verse 1, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth. For an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. May God, the Holy Spirit, grant us the wisdom to understand the text before us this morning. It's a little difficult sometimes to fix the date in which the epistle of Jude was written. As we can gather, it is dated approximately between 64 and 66 A.D. by most expositors. The author, I believe, is none other than Jude, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ and Savior. The epistle itself is a very short one, but a very urgent one, if we may use that word. It is a general epistle, which means that it was written to all the churches in that surrounding area rather than to a specific church in a specific location. It bears a tremendous resemblance to the second epistle of Peter, chapter 2. Both of them deal with false teachers. However, if we closely examine the both, we will see that Peter's epistle warns of their future coming. There shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, wrote Peter in 2 Peter 2.1. And then in verse 2, And many shall follow their pernicious ways, and so on. But in Jude they have already come. They have already infiltrated the churches. They have already begun their evil work. That is leading God's people astray and destroying their faith. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude goes, uh, pens this very timely epistle to the church at large and encourages the saints of God to earnestly contend for the faith. The first point in my message I've entitled, The Delivery, verses 1 to 2. The interesting thing about the setup of this magnificent epistle is that it seems to have so many triplets of ideas or thoughts. And so as we go along, I would like for us to notice these triplets. Notice in the first verse, the writer introduces himself with a trio of ideas. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James. Though he may have had perfect uh, privilege to announce himself as brother of Jesus, he chose not to do so. He no longer knew Jesus, the man but rather now Christ, the resurrected and glorified. Jude was therefore a servant of Jesus Christ, for there is no higher title that a Christian may bear than that of being a servant of Jesus Christ. Those who will be great in heaven must be servants on this earth. It upsets me to no end to hear certain so-called Christian denominations address our Lord as our brother he is not our brother we are all brothers and sisters in Christ but he is our Lord the risen glorified Lord of heaven he is the majesty on high at whose name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord No longer should we come to him in prayer by addressing him as Jesus, sweet Jesus, etc., but rather as Lord Jesus, or gracious God, or loving Savior, etc. Then we see another triplet. The epistle is addressed to them that are number one, sanctified by God the Father, number two, preserved in Jesus Christ and number three called what a treasure of joy this is for the saints of God first of all says the writer we are sanctified by God the father now what does that mean sanctified by God the father why simply this that those who have come to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, God the Father has instantly set them apart for himself. He has made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light and has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told all of that in Colossians 1, verses 12 to 14. And this is all a work of God that cannot be reversed. And then we are reminded that we are, as saints, are also preserved in Jesus Christ. Whatever our difficulties, whatever our circumstances in life, whatever our lot, writes the hymn writer, Thou hast taught us it is well with our soul. We are kept by Christ Jesus. He is able to save evermore all those who come unto God by him seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. John ten twenty seven 27-30 Christ Jesus keeps us. And the third title the called, all saints of God are called out ones. We are all reminded by the Lord's very own words, many are called, but few are chosen in Matthew twenty sixteen, God the Father calls everyone to salvation, but not everyone responds to his call. And then in verse 2, Jude salutes the saints of God with these precious three words, mercy, peace, and love. Only the saints of God can fully appreciate these three joys of sainthood. Mercy each day from God our Father while passing through such a world as this. Peace from God our Father, peace that passeth all understanding, Peace that says no matter what the circumstances may bring, God is with us and will see us through it all so that all of these things will work out to the good of them that love him. Romans 8:28. And that our suffering here will be well worth it when compared in light of eternity. And then there is love. That's the glue that binds us to our precious Savior. The love of God that will never fail to keep loving us in Christ Jesus. This is the love that the Apostle Paul spoke of in Romans 8, verses 38 to 39. For I am persuaded, writes Paul, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all these three, mercy, peace, and love, are multiplied by God as we yield ourselves day by day and walk in the Spirit. Mercy from God to man, peace between God and man, And love from God to man. Then, as we come to verse 3, we realize that the whole purpose of this epistle, the reason for writing it to the church, is the urgency of witnessing. And so, I've called my second point the design. And the design or the purpose for writing this letter was to exhort the saints of God to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And what Jude is saying here is this. As I was moved to write to you concerning the common salvation, that is of those things which pertain to the salvation of us all, I was compelled to write to you specifically about the things which are about to be mentioned, namely, the growing number of false teachers or apostates in the professing church and what our response to them should be. First of all, says Jude, we must earnestly contend for the faith which was once Delivered on the saints. And when he says the faith, he does not mean the faith which every saint of God has in Christ. That is, he is not referring to the belief or the trust that each must have in Christ our Lord. But rather he is referring to that body of doctrines or beliefs, which we call the basic tenets of Christianity those things which all of us as Christians must surely believe as Christians, in other words, the gospel of Christ, which includes such precious truths as that while we were yet sinners, lost and headed for a Christless eternity, foreigners to the grace of God, Christ Jesus shed his blood for us so that we by faith might receive him as our sacrifice and propitiation for all our sins. That through Christ and Christ alone we might be reconciled to God. That the shedding of Christ's perfect, sinless blood was absolutely necessary. That he had to be nailed to the cross of Calvary, for that is the only way That the Holy Lamb of God could have been made a curse for us. For the scriptures state that cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Galatians 3 verse 13. That Christ had to suffer. That he had to be crucified. For again we are told in scriptures that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. Hebrews 9.22, and that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. And that Christ Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is fully man and fully God, and that those whom he saves, he keeps forever, not losing a single one of them. These are the kind of truths that make up the faith and that are the things that all blood-bought saints of God are urged to earnestly contend for. For this faith has been delivered once to all. There are no more new things which will be added later on. There are no old things which must be taken away later on, but all things which make up the faith are sound and secure, and only those who creep in as wolves in sheep's clothing, who profess to be sheep but who have never been changed by the great shepherd, will try to destroy the faith by perverting the truth and gathering followers after themselves. But how are we to contend for the faith? Do we ruthlessly fight and challenge all who seem to be incorrect in their views on teaching or teaching? Not at all. But rather we must first be assured of what we believe. We must be founded securely in the word of God ourselves first and then we must hold fast to that which we have been taught. Our lives must reflect what our hearts believe, and our hands must always be careful to gently deal with the lost. To be as our Savior, long-suffering, graciously wooing the loss to the Savior, contending for the faith is not being contentious. Only the Lord knows how much damage has been done by callous, carnal Christians who, thinking themselves spiritual, have made shipwreck of countless souls by their legalistic bludgeoning into submission, unwitting souls." But contending for the faith does mean no compromise. It does not mean giving up what it does, however, mean not giving up one single iota of doctrine or practice or belief which we believe Mm -hmm. the scriptures teach. Because once we give in to that first compromise, it won't be long before we give in completely, step by step. Yes, writes Jude, we are to earnestly contend for the faith. Why? Why? Because false teachers or apostates in the professing church are now proliferating. Which brings us to our third point in the message, the declaration or description of apostates. And apostates, of course, are false teachers. Verse 4. Dearly beloved, there are such things as false teachers or apostates in the professing church today. They have been with the church since the beginning. Our Lord himself taught that there will be tares among the wheat, but that they will be left in the fields with the harvest, or until the harvest. And sometimes these tares are hardly indistinguishable from the wheat, but give them some time, and the fruit they bear will expose them as to their true nature. And so in verse 4, Jude begins by warning the saints that they have crept in unawares. In other words, they did not come into the church with a sign saying, hey, we are apostates, we don't believe in the same doctrines as you teach, etc. But they have crept in unawares, that is, they have subtly infiltrated the local assemblies under the cloak of of Christianity. They may have come in as young graduate seminarians with great degrees and qualifications, or they may have come in from other churches, citizens of social status with much to offer. They may be doctors, lawyers, teachers, farmers, general laborers, and so on. But if they have never been born again by the Spirit of God and have never trusted, in the great shepherd for their salvation, you can be sure that sooner or later they will bring in damnable heresies into the church and many, many may follow their ways. There are three characteristics in verse 4 to these apostates. Number one, they are ungodly men. That is, they do not have the Spirit of Christ in them. They do not walk by the Spirit, and they are not bound by the Word of God in their daily lives. Number two, they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. That is, they use grace as their excuse for living immorally. They do as they please. There is no righteousness in their lives. Sin is winked at. And although they may claim that they are Christians and may take a talk and act like Christians on Sundays or in the presence of other saints, their lives betray their claims for there is no light nor life in them. They live for themselves and not for the Savior. And number three, they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And how many times have we heard people say, we are Christians, but we can't believe that God would send anyone to hell because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. Dearly beloved, the reason you became believers in the first place was because you and I realized that without Christ, we were lost and destined to a Christless eternity. We needed someone to take care of the sin problem once and for all. We needed a sin bearer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these false teachers will deny the Lord Jesus Christ in many ways, but primarily in this, that Christ is not the only way of salvation, totally disregarding the plain teaching of Scripture where the Lord says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. John fourteen six, And lest we forget... The saints of God get misled by their outward appearances and friendly characters and personalities. The writer puts us in remembrance of how God deals with apostates. This now brings us to the fourth point in my message, the destruction of apostates, verses 5, 6, and 7. Jude reminds the body of believers that God does not mess around with apostates. We may pussyfoot around them in our local assemblies for fear of starting division or turmoil, but God has no such fear. Though he is long-suffering, there is an end to his tolerance of sin. Again, we see a triplet of reminders. Verse 5. Remember Israel in Egypt, writes Jude. Remember how God in his mercy delivered them out of Egypt from their bondage. How he nurtured them in the wilderness under Moses. How he performed countless miracles. How he kept his promises to them and then because of their unbelief, which manifested itself in idolatry and immorality, he destroyed them. He destroyed them all except Joshua and Caleb. Even Moses, because of his disobedience, was not allowed to enter the promised land. This was Israel, his chosen people, and God destroyed them because of unbelief. And then number two, verse six. Jude says, remember the angels, the angels which kept not their first estate but left their first habitation. Where are they now? They are in the abyss, the temporary holding place reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of that great day when they will finally be cast into the burning like a fire. Now, which angels are these? Are there not many evil angels in the employ of Satan today going about freely doing well? Yes, there are. But these particular angels, whoever they may be, and I don't think we can know with any certainty from scripture who they are, but they are so evil and so wicked that they have been dealt with by God for their rebellion because of unbelief. They cast off their proper order, their proper rank, and chose to do their own thing and are now awaiting that awful eternal judgment called hell fire. And thirdly, In verse 7, writes Jude, remember Sodom and Gomorrah. And how can we ever forget Sodom and Gomorrah? Even the world, the unsaved, know of Sodom and Gomorrah. What was their great sin? Why, it was sexual perversion, fornication, homosexuality, and all manner of sexual perversion. They too Have been set aside for an example of suffering the vengeance of fire. Look around us today. We have these same sins being manifest openly, unashamedly, and joyfully in our society today. Adultery is rampant, premarital sex among the young is everywhere homosexuality is being lauded as a gift of God and should be accepted as such. Lesbianism, abortion, child pornography, transgenderism, increase in crime and lawlessness. All of that is good spoken of. While evil is, is spoken of good, good is spoken of evil. So everything in society today is turned upside down. We are entering that same precarious situation which Sodom and Gomorrah found themselves in. However, we've been in that situation for decades now, and it is only by the grace of God that he has withheld His judgment until the rapture. But thank the Lord we as Christians look for a heavenly city not built by the hands of man. And this should be a sober warning to the church of all ages. There is absolutely no remedy for apostasy. Once a person departs from Scripture, there is no remedy for it. Unfortunately, many Christians naively think that, yeah, we can draw them back. We can can correct them. They'll, They'll just need proper teaching. Well, it doesn't work. Unbelief brings rebellion and opposition to God's authority. And rebellion brings immorality and sin of all sorts. And sin sooner or later brings upon itself the deserved righteous judgment of God. Now we're going to stop there for part one because we don't have time to do part two. But Lord willing, we'll continue with that next Lord's Day. But you all know, as always, before I step down from this platform, I must ask you this solemn question. Are you in Christ this morning? There are only two possible answers or scenarios. Either you are in Christ, that is, you are saved, you are a genuine Christian born of the Spirit of God, or you are not. You cannot be in between. Either you are in Christ or you are out of Christ. And the message to all this morning as a child of God is this. That we must earnestly contend for the faith. That we must earnestly seek to win the lost for Christ through our witnessing to them. But if our life does not match our talk, then there is a serious, serious problem that needs to be immediately addressed. If we are not in Christ this morning, then the message to all of us is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 16.31 And Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. Oh, dear friends, I urge you this morning, if you are not certain, or those who will be listening by sermon audio, if you've never truly heard the gospel of salvation, I plead with you, do not delay. You know in your heart where you truly stand before the Lord and what you need to do while there is still yet some time. Please believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee for these precious letters that form the bulk of the New Testament, thy Holy Bible. We thank thee for this letter from Jude, who the Holy Spirit impressed to write this letter of urgency, not only to the churches of his day, but to the churches of all times, that we are to earnestly contend for our faith. We are not to be ashamed of the Savior who gave himself for us and loves us, bought us, redeemed us, keeps us. We are not to compromise even one single bit of truth, but we are to faithfully present the whole counsel of God whenever the opportunity offers itself. We thank thee for this morning's service and the privilege of gathering around the Lord's table to remember him and to worship our God. And so we now ask Thee, Lord, to part us with Thy blessings and keep us from sin and harm's way. And if the Lord be not come, may it please Thee once again to bring us together next Lord's Day around His table to remember Him. For we do ask it in His name and always for His glory. Amen. в